0: Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. On the heels of a controversial FDA decision regarding a medication for Alzheimer's disease, I wanted to pick up on a topic that we as GPs have a large responsibility for, but fewer tools in our toolbox, and that's dementia. I was curious whether there's more that we can do to support patients and the family members who take care of them. We'll have future episodes on other aspects of dementia because this is a huge topic. But in this episode, we'll focus on some non-drug interventions, as well as the line between the medicine of dementia and the fact that it's very much a social issue. I'm Johnny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as always, I'm here with Tom. Hi, Tom.
1: Hi, Jenny. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor at the BMJ. I'm very glad to be taking a more of a back seat today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and we're, we're joined as ever by Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy.
2: Hi everyone. Uh, I'm Navjot Larder. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And Tom, do you want to explain why you're taking a backseat? seat? Maybe um, <laughs> you don't. Yeah, <laughs> you're I probably sitting should. on the should floor, not... surrounded by cardboard boxes. <laughs> yes. Well,
1: yeah. I've just moved house. Uh, I've got no internet connection in the new house, so I'm surrounded by cardboard boxes at my old house. And um, and so, well, that's not the only reason. But also, Jenny, Jenny, you've um, <laughs> Taken on this this topic that we're going to cover today, haven't you? And and done the interviews, and so uh, you know it, you're going to lead on 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 this today, which I'm really looking forward to.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody listening out there. And um, so this so what we're going to talk about today is something that um became a little bit personal for me this year. Um, I have a family member who is affected by dementia. And I was listening to This American Life and specifically the episode called The Daily. And there was a segment in this episode, which was released on May 14 of this year, called So Nice to Hear Your Voice. And it features this incredibly emotional segment of a granddaughter calling her grandmother who's in a residential home. She has dementia um, over the course of the pandemic when she and her family could not get inside to talk with her grandmother, to see her, to provide any kind of the usual care or support. And it is the most visceral feeling of despair to listen to the grandmother decline sequentially over the these phone calls with her granddaughter um that are being recorded and um i it just really resonated with me on so many levels um and so i wanted to kind of talk to experts in the field and figure out kind of whether any of this was you know something we could have done better um or, or kind of how we can be more future-looking about this.
1: Yeah, I guess that's one thing we've sort of grappled with, haven't we? That what are these kind of hidden or harder to spot effects of, of the last year or so? You know, and, and I think cognitive decline is, is talked about. Is it is this is this going to be accelerated by the lack of social contact, or is it just that people are going to notice it more because they're having fewer contacts with their loved ones and? feels like one of those things that maybe we'll never really get to the bottom of, but we, or maybe that's just me being negative these days. But um, is that what we're, we're going to look at today? That would be really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we do have, I think people who work in this area do have a clear sense that the social isolation brought on by lockdown and pandemic restrictions was really bad for people with dementia, apart from the infectious threat but just really bad. And um, yeah, I'm curious if either of you spoke to family members or patients who were struggling with this and the fact that they were physically isolated from someone that they were a caretaker for.
1: Yeah, um, I t- I'll be honest, in my, in my practice, we we have a, qu- a relatively younger population. And unlike many GPs, we we don't look, look after, so to speak, at a nursing home. So uh, I don't think I've got a huge huge amount to uh, draw on there in terms of what I've seen. And I, I just find it really difficult to, to know. It's easy to attribute things to, to the lack of social isolation when, you know, it has been over a year and, and you know, for some people things deteriorate in, in that time. So, um, yeah, what about you, Navjoy?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't... Uh, I haven't in any of the... Um... GP my regular GP work I don't look after um, a residential home but definitely have had calls from um, kind of despairing relatives who are worried about um, family members or who want to know if there's more that they can do particularly during that um, earlier period of lockdown when contact was so sort of diminished and um, I kind of look back on that time and and like you Jenny it, it, it it sort of defies belief really that that happened and that I know we were all just trying to nobody knew kind of what the right thing to do was there and in the UK certainly care homes were so massively affected um, at the start that there was this kind of really swift action to uh, isolate people I suppose to prevent the transmission of the infection but the kind of social consequences of that now looking back it just seems really cruel I mean like a lot of like a lot of aspects of you know things that people have had to do during the pandemic like family members being alone in hospital as well it just um it's just hard to kind of stomach that now I think what
0: you're getting at is exactly what hit me too is like the thing we needed to do that we thought was protection was one of the worst things we could have done for them in terms of their dementia progression. I mean, no question that isolation and closing things and reducing, you know, visitors is good from an infection standpoint, although some PPE would have been nice. Um but but it's it's that piece that where do you find where, how do you define protection when what you're doing is actually harmful?
1: Mm. Yeah, and whenever I think of um the, the sort of plight, I suppose, of, of the elderly in, in in the in the pandemic, I always think of the terrible decisions to to, to send patients from hospital with COVID into nursing homes, you know, seeding infection and killing how, who knows how many people in the process. Um and it's almost the reaction to that is well, you know, that's that's you know, let's have have even more measures to you know, like stopping visiting um, whereas if we perhaps had done things better in the first place we wouldn't have had to take such, such drastic action I, I, I'm not sure but uh, it feels like we we often focus on the um, one thing when we maybe should be looking at, at, at another so Jenny I love that you listen to like American podcasts and read the Washington Post and uh, which I find really refreshing because everyone I know just reads the Guardian and <laughs> You know, has a, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, the <laughs> but same, I think it makes more interesting points, people to interview yeah. as well. So, who have you got today?
0: <laughs> well, you can count on me to bring the American perspective. Um, <laughs> so, speaking of American perspective, just kidding. Um, I I interv- I had the great privilege to speak with Jason Carlowish and he's a geriatrician and um, writer at the University of Pennsylvania. And he has a new book out called The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. And he was actually interviewed also by the Washington Post for this for this um, piece specifically looking at the impact of COVID-19 on folks with dementia. And it was a really great conversation um where we kind of talk about the devastation that's happened but also what we can do going forward and a lot of different um aspects of dementia care and my interview with jason Carloish is just coming up after this message from our sponsor
3: when you're a gp you're not just nine to five being a gp is part of who you are whatever the time of day so when it comes to your indemnity You need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical Protection is always here for you, with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up-to-date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify, or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career, with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org.
0: Now back to my interview about the effect of lockdown on cognitive decline.
4: I'm Jason Karlowish. I'm a physician trained in geriatric medicine, and I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I co-direct the Penn Memory Center, and I run a research team called the Penn Program for Precision Medicine for the Brain.
0: I had a brief look at the evidence, and my understanding is that there we have some idea that social isolation has been associated with developing cognitive decline or cognitive impairment, um, but I found less on the relationship between social isolation and actually worsening of that cognitive impairment or progression of dementia. And I wonder if you could kind of talk to us about what evidence we have on the impact of social isolation on our brain's cognitive
4: function. Sure. I mean, you could take it back to uh, biblical times when banishment and solitary confinement became punishments. Um, you know indeed you know solitary confinement is the punishment just short of execution um, for a criminal um, and can uh, uh, be devastating on an individual but setting aside you know penal penology or uh, um, you know th- there's there's animal evidence even um, so uh, in animal models of uh, mice genetically engineered to develop um, Alzheimer's disease at least however it occurs in a mouse um, the mice that have uh, socially isolated and cognitively unengaged cage, they're fed and watered, you know, they're, they're, they're but they're otherwise really unengaged. They're actually more likely over time uh, to develop uh, cognitive impairment than the mice who are genetically engineered, um, but but have other mice around them and things to play with and do. Um, and, you know, there's ways that they show that they do quicker on the water maze or whatnot, and all the other tests. Yeah. There's very compelling data that you know, uh, keeping a brain nurtured keeps a brain healthy. Um, So, you know, take that now to a brain that's impaired, namely a brain that has a disease like Alzheimer's or another disease that causes dementia. And isolation means you've taken away the nurturing that keeps a brain healthy. Um, Now, you know, if you're sufficiently a self-starter, independent person, you know, creative, you can sort things out and make that work. Um, Back to prisoners, you know, some do, you know, Mm -hmm. but if you're cognitively impaired, you're inherently interdependent on another person. Mm -hmm. Um, We often call that person the caregiver. And so if you take Mm -hmm. away that that expended mind, you're sort of it's almost like taking away to use a bad Mm -hmm. metaphor, but it's like taking away the wheelchair from someone who has, you know, a quadriplegia, you know.
0: Right. And so can you say a little bit more about exactly kind of what you were hearing and what you saw in in these patients who who were suddenly subjected to social isolation, who had their kind of supports stripped away,
4: yeah. So particularly, you know, in individuals in residential long term care, the stories you heard about were um, the family members saying, you know, I, I talked with her on the phone and she's clearly worse. Mm-hmm. You know, less conversational, less capable um, of carrying a conversation. There were reports of uh, agitation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to the point where sadly you know patients even had to then go to hospital to quote treat the agitation um i say that quote because oftentimes a trip to the hospital will only make the agitation worse totally uh, weight loss deconditioning um and worsening in functional abilities you know someone who once was at least able to get up out of bed and dress uh now needed someone else to dress them mm. um, so you know obvious decline in in, in functional abilities and, and and death i mean frankly people died
0: yeah. Um so there was a there was a segment on the podcast This American Life which I think really displays exactly what you're talking about where a family member recorded her telephone conversations with her grandmother who had dementia and was living in a nursing home. Um and there There are a lot of people who were in this situation where they had very little that they could do for their loved ones. um, And they tried to do what they could via telephone, via video communication, dropping things off. Um, But even for those of us without cognitive impairment, sometimes communication over a video platform is is a poor substitute for what we're used to in terms of face-to-face interactions. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how good these platforms are um, specifically for people with cognitive impairment. Um, do they help or could they even in some cases make it worse?
4: Yeah. So the, the episode of This American Life uh, that you mentioned, I listened to it and um, it, 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 it's devastating. Um, by the end of it, your breath is taken away. Totally. Um, their, the, their communication was via telephone boy you could see the struggle through telephone uh, because you lack the visual input for communication you know the nonverbal aspects hmm. uh, plus the just the challenges of the audio quality for a phone call mm-hmm. uh, and it was just so devastating to listen to that granddaughter you know kind of struggling with the phone like what is there a pause here or not um, so add video and you know video might work uh, better than because you're sort of bringing the nonverbal aspects in. But a, some, a lot of family was reported for persons with cognitive impairments, the video was actually confusing. Um, you know, They sort of reach, try and touch it, or they really couldn't quite figure what they were looking at. Um, um, so I'm not saying video is not good. I'm just saying that the notion that it's the panacea for a person um, being live and in-person Um, you know, it it, it, might have, my my language is loaded, but it it isn't a panacea. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's something about being live and in person that is, is better connection than live, but not in person. But certainly that's better than, you know, remote and only audio, for example. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And do we have any data on this? I mean, not that you know video could and could sometimes make things worse but i'm just wondering in terms of the state of the evidence kind of what do we no, know i'm not about? familiar with
4: any studies that have examined you know impact of using video based uh, interventions um boy if they're not done they should be done and certainly we have a lot of <laughs> a lot of preliminary data from the last 18 months um you know about the, the the virtues and vices i mean i see patients during the pandemic at its peak i saw patients remotely And and it's interesting, I mean, I I had the advantage of seeing a very sort of interesting natural experiment. I would see the family member and the patient, the caregiver um, and the patient. Um, And you could see there in some cases, certainly how having cognitive impairment um, versus not makes a difference in your ability to use the technology. I don't mean use it like, you know, what buttons to click. We all struggle with that. Mm -hmm. I just mean being able to kind of use it as a communicative device, you know, and, and, and so it was it was interesting sort of paired experiment, you know. And in, I never had a case where the family member was struggling, but the patient was doing fine. It was usually the, either they were both doing okay on it. Um, and, and many patients did fine on it and really, you know, I could engage them and talk with them. But there were certainly some cases where the patient just wasn't quite following what is this interface here and what's yeah. going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of switching gears here, or perhaps looking at the other side, can you describe what bra- best practice might consist of in terms of caring for people with cognitive impairment, who are living away from their families, or kind of what would you have recommended to those caregivers um, that, you, that you saw whose, whose family members um, were in homes that were closed to them?
4: One of the revealing things that came out of this pandemic was that the board visitor is a limited word. Hmm. And it doesn't adequately capture what happens when a family member or someone else who's close to someone with cognitive impairment, quote, visits them. So, you know, the standard idea of a visitor is, you know, they they come visiting and they bring a newspaper and uh, I don't know, some cookies and whatever, small talk. Um, But it's more than that. And I think what the pandemic revealed both in long-term care institutions as well as hospitals is that some visitors are not just visitors. And they're really in a caregiving role, even though we wouldn't think of them as quote caregivers in the formal sense of, you know, well, my mother's in an institution and they're the caregivers. Well, no, actually you still are the caregiver. So, well, what do you mean by that? Well, um, you know, and that's where family members would say, you know, I'm the one that can get her to eat. I'm the one that, yeah. you know, uh, connects with her in ways that keeps her um, sort of alive and inside, uh, inside, you know, or in the hospital, you know, the presence of the family member is essential to help reduce the risk of delirium and yeah. uh, which is a devastating complication for a, for a person with dementia. It's, it, yeah. it can frankly cause death.
0: Um, I think that is such an interesting concept, this idea of visitor and kind of it's, it's, as you say, it's so much more than just kind of coming and sitting and sharing small talk. There is so much. Yeah, I mean, you do
4: that. I mean, you do come and sit and share small talk, but it's it's not just small talk, you know? Yeah. And that, I mean, one of the ironies of dimension, I kind of sort of bring this out in, the, in, in my writing in the book is this, this, the, 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 the facts are very quotidian about the disease and, and but behind them are very intense moral st- uh, themes and whatnot. And, and certainly caregiving brings that out. The, um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, in the case of, so there's enormous, if you accept my premise about, you know, not all visitors are visitors, there's enormous policy implications to that, hmm. you know, um, in the design and conduct of hospitals, to what degree should they reasonably accommodate the ability for, for a caregiver?
0: I mean, I'm not sure I'm up to date on the evidence with respect to um, how long we can expect someone with mild or moderate to dementia to kind of stay in that state before they, before they deteriorate.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, implicit in your question, at what point does home no longer work and and how do you know it and what do you do?
5: That too. Um, yeah. I mean, every,
4: every patient has a variable rate of change and decline. Um, you know, and I think it's a personal choice on the part of a family when home is no longer working. Um, and that choice is as much about some of the things I'll describe in a minute as it is about finances, for example, mm-hmm. um, and other resources of time. I mean, I have some families who have essentially just, you know, several people have moved into a common home. Some have reduced their work and they're just gonna make this work until the, till the end. death. I have others who say, this isn't working anymore. So what are the, some of the things, you know, again, the, the mantra I have is, you know, is the person's day safe, social and engaged? And if the answer to any one of those things is, well, no, then what's it going to take to make it safe, social, or engage, whatever's missing. And sometimes the answer to that is it's not working here anymore. And there are many kind of reasons that are unique to each patient why it's not working. But I think some of the common denominators or common themes are the person just simply no longer is really recognizing their home and, and constantly uncomfortable space they're in the patient that I call them patients because of course I'm a doctor, mm. but, you know, um, Um, They're really having trouble recognizing the family that's caring for them and, um, you know, really so unloosened from the idea of home as the place you recognize with the people in it that you know, that home just no longer works. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there really is. I mean, I know the, the rhetoric around the care of persons with dementia is, you know, community-based long-term care services and supports, you know, stay in your home for as long as possible. From a policymaker's perspective, of course, that's very attractive because it's cheaper to have people in the community than in the home. And there's no question many of us want to, quote, remain in our home. But what is home when you no longer recognize your home? I mean, I think that's something that does occur in the life of persons with dementia. Many of them achieve a point where they say, I don't know, you know, where, when are we going home? This isn't, you know, we're, no, we're not at home. This isn't my home. And, you know, we, you know, we were together all day. We got to get married. A is the home we've been in for 45 years. B, we've been married for 50 of those years. So when patients reach that point, I mean, it's morally, emotionally devastating for families. Mm-hmm. But I often think that, you know, really homes are no longer working. And, and, and it makes sense actually to go to a residential setting. Um, uh, and so actually, I don't think the problem is nursing homes. I think the problem is the quality of our nursing homes and not enough nursing mm-hmm. homes. This idea that you know our goal should be to shutter all nursing homes in America is, I think, foolish. I think yeah. what what we need to do is recognize what is the goal of a nursing home. You know, in America, we've made them into mini hospitals, providing you know um, ex, uh, you know a step down from hospital so that they're a little bit, they become little cash cows of providing a little mini hospital care, things that used to be done in, in the inpatient setting. Um, but really, we need to rethink. You know. They're best thought of as asylums, um, and by that I don't mean asylums where, you know, like, Bedlam, you know, sources of, you know, sort of horror shows, but true asylums. Like for some people, the world outside just isn't working anymore, you know, and yeah. they need the shelter and 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 escape that an asylum will provide. And certainly, for in the lives of persons with dementia, there comes a time when they need an asylum. Many of them,
2: yeah,
4: homes aren't working.
0: I've never heard someone say it like that before, kind of home is not working anymore. And I think that's a really useful construct in so many ways to help a, a, yeah. a doctor really visualize what that means and how to assess that.
4: Yeah, I, I call it in the book, I call it home looseness, uh, um, and, and, you know, they're just so unloosened from the idea of home mm. uh, that a new home is needed. You know, yeah. Homeless, they're in a place, but
1: they're homeless. Uh, I like the, the mention of, of mice there. I always enjoy, you know, hearing about mice experiments and and the so lonely, lonely, isolated mice. It's amazing that you know a creature so small can, can give us so much useful information uh so I just wanted to, to you know flag up my you know, gratitude <laughs> for, for including that um that I mean, is not want... what I
0: thought you were going to lead with
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um one thing that, that occurred to me yeah, you know, it's just like a theme isn't it that, that from our very first episode where we talked to Tr- Trish Greenhouse about um video consultations you know it's that came up again, didn't it? That this isn't a panacea, I think is, was his term. And uh, yeah, definitely. That's something I've concluded over the last year is I, I hardly do any videos now. And yeah, you know, I, I actually just want to see people face to face, but um, still not quite happening as much as I'd like. So it was interesting to hear that, that come up again.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I mean, I'm doing not many videos. And if I'm not seeing someone face to face, it's by telephone. And actually telephone is useful in many ways, but for this kind of thing that, you know, it, it, is, it is really, really hard and particularly over that kind of serial period of time to get a sense of what's happening with someone, really difficult. And, um, you know, I'm, I'll be glad when we're kind of are more able to see more people face to face.
0: I thought it was just really interesting to hear him talk about how for some people it is fine actually, and that, you know, the caretaker seems to be getting along with it, but that for some people, it just further confuses them, like trying to reach out and touch the screen, or just not really being oriented to the modality. And, um, you know, not to keep beating my drum, but it's just one of these things about, you know, where are we actually causing harm, like we um, are potentially injecting things that could create further confusion that could exacerbate already what's going on um so i think that mm. that's yeah just really interesting to me
1: it's just so um complicated isn't it there's so many different uh, things going on um when he was talking about visitors and you know i think we in the in the press we see quite a kind of narrow kind of view of you know, the person wanting to hug their their parents or something, but it's it's so much more than a social interaction. There's so much other stuff going on around in 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 the visit. Um, you know, it's sort of checking are they being well cared for. You know, it's bringing them some food. It's looking at some some photos together or, or playing some more music or all these different things. And you can't just um, you know you can't just kind of reduce it all down to to a, a social interaction.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think these are like these are like big questions for society really about how we um how we mm. care for everyone and particularly vulnerable people in our society and it reminded me a lot of um I don't know if you've read Atul Gawande's book Being Mortal where he talks about um aging and end of life and in particular for aging you know he talks about how um you know we've really medicalized getting older and um for older people we prioritize safety over living a kind of full and thriving life um to, till the end and um in dementia obviously you know there there's an element of uh, a need to be safe if if someone's cognitively impaired but i think i think there's a, there's a middle ground isn't there with and particularly in in the context of a pandemic that that kind of need for safety has kind of trumped everything else and I think probably to the detriment of mm. thinking about those other ways of how we can support people to kind of live more fully. Um, and, and that's what really occurred mm. to me is that there does need to be a kind of, um, I mean, in that, in that book, Being Mortal, he talks about kind of new models of residential homes where people are doing different things and, you know, un- you don't have to lock the doors and uh, it doesn't feel so mu- so kind of institutionalized. Um And, uh, yeah, it just seems like we need that kind of, I'm sure it's happening in places, but that kind of different thinking to, um, yeah, do things things differently. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I read the first (laughs) uh, chapter of that book. It was really good. And then I just...
2: So so good, you couldn't finish reading it. It was so good. You (laughs) couldn't put it it down.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: I've got a signed copy. One of the first things Um, um, I got to do. Have you? I've got a
1: signed copy. Oh,
2: okay, great. I don't. I yeah. don't feel so special anymore. Go and tell
1: us what's your what's your what's your signed you copy know, story. One of the first things story? I got to
2: do when I was at the BMJ was um, go and interview him. He was in London, and um, and actually Duncan mm. and I went to meet him. Sorry, we're <laughs> not going to be Duncan our producer. Uh, we went and uh, sat in a ho- his hotel lobby and interviewed him, which was great.
1: I reckon. I, I mean, I was thinking during that it's absolutely right about the quality of nursing homes we definitely have that kind of issue in in the UK is um your question questions over, over the quality of nursing homes and what what they're there to to do I suppose um and I was just thinking if if somebody wants to give me sort of 100 million pounds I you know I, I reckon it would it would take such a huge amount of investment and um probably wouldn't make any money would it but to do it in a way that you think would, would be the, the the good way the proper way of doing it like he's alluding to there or maybe what Atal Gohande is saying in his book um, I just don't I don't see that that really happening without some a lot of money and and I don't know what, what, what do you think about that are we ever going to fix that problem
2: well, I think there are some basics that, um, you know, like staffing and, you know, a good working environment for staff and a fair pay for staff um, mm. that all contribute to that problem. Mm. And, you know, and we saw in the pandemic providing PPE for staff as well. And until I suppose we make that, that those basics in place, it will be really hard, I think, to improve things and, and get things, the quality up to where you want it to be, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. It's such an important area um, of attention.
0: 100%. I mean, and you, I don't know if this was the case in the UK as well, but so many of the challenges with residential homes in the US was because the people who work there, by and large, are people who make a low income, who live in more densely populated Parts of the city where, at least in New York City, as an example, like the infection rates went out of control. So of course, you're you're sending the people who are most vulnerable to being infected with COVID nineteen from a social community perspective into the places where residents are most vulnerable. Um, so it, it, it was it's a it's a bad scenario, and I think you're exactly right, Navjoyd It links to our perception of what the value of that care is and and then how we fund it um Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i mean there was a period of time when we were clapping for people and uh you know this whole conversation about like now we know who the essential workers are let's pay them properly and of course here we are (laughs) like 18 months later and it you know we're talking Mm -hmm. about uh pay rises for health and social care staff that don't match inflation and and all of that um and that to me seems like a really fundamental issue
0: so one of the things that also um struck me about the interview and our conversation was in some ways this tension between um staying at home in your own community and getting community-based resources and access to support from community organizations and different carers versus kind of moving to a residential place. And like, yes, the quality of those homes needs to be improved in so many different ways. Um, But one thing I've been thinking about is the kind of cultural competency of some of those care services. You know, if you are... Um, a migrant to another country and, um, don't, you know, speak the language where you're living, but are more comfortable in your first language. And you get a support person who's coming in, speaking to you in in words that you're less comfortable with, um, you know, acting toward you in a way that isn't kind of fitting with your conception of care or that doesn't make the family comfortable or, um, it, it, it just struck me that this must be so challenging to to find or to build a network of community-based support that can actually help people who are living in their homes, whether that's giving caregivers a respite, whether that's providing culturally competent kind of communication and activities, or whether that's just kind of allowing the person who has the cognitive impairment to be comfortable with this other person being in their home,
1: yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, we do see see that sometimes with um, yeah, with, with with a person who who, who maybe it doesn't <laughs> get on with, or that, yeah, the, the, the carer, or there's a there's a divide between yeah. I guess what you say, the c- cultural cultural competency, a nice phrase. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I don't. I don't never quite sure what what the right kind of uh, response to it is like and and maybe another one of those problems that's kind of bigger than 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 what we can do in in practice on an individual basis
0: so contemplating some of these bigger changes and recognizing the challenges even in what is considered the kind of gold standard community-based support got me thinking about what gps can do to help this And what GPs can do to help families and support families, provide care and um, caring for their family member or loved one with cognitive impairment. So I spoke to Jen Watt, and she is a geriatrician. And also the author of one of our research papers from this year in the BMJ um, called Comparative Efficacy of Interventions for Reducing Symptoms of Depression in People with Dementia. And that was a systematic review and network meta-analysis. And so she talked to me about some of the non-pharmacologic interventions um, to support patients with dementia. And that interview with Jen Watt is coming up after this offer for Deep Breath In listeners in the UK.
3: As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, it includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets, and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com ukaccess UK access. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. Back to my interview with Jen about non-drug
0: interventions for dementia.
5: My name is Dr. Jennifer Watt. I'm a geriatrician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Canada, uh, and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. So, um... Thank you for asking about about the study. It was a really um, large study and and we were able to really sort of like comb through the literature and identify all of the randomized trials that have been done, you know, looking at, you know, how well do some of these different medication and non-medication based strategies work? And I'm really happy that we identified, you know, a number of interventions that really do work and they actually work in a clinically meaningful way. Like for example, Reminiscence therapy worked worked really well. And what is Um, that? So reminiscence therapy can take a number can take different forms. Um, You know, as you were saying, it could be something like you know recording your voice or voices of a family member, um, and um, then having. The, you know, person with dementia, be able to listen to that um, whenever, whenever they need to. And so that can be really, you know, I can imagine how that would be really um, heartwarming for them to, you know, hear the voices of their grandchildren when mm-hmm. when they're having a, having a bad day. Um, it could be other things though, too, because it could be um, something like, you know, reading old newspapers or old books or listening to music from sort of like bygone eras, just sort mm-hmm. of anything, that like takes them back to, um, you know, a different time in their life when, um, when they might have experienced sort of feelings of joy and happiness. Um, and, and so yeah, the reminiscence therapy is really, is a good one in that you can do it in person or you can do it remotely. Um, and so it has really sort of lent itself well to, to being a helpful intervention during, during the pandemic. Um, besides that though, there's other interventions as well, like animal therapy. I know not everyone loves, loves animals, but I think there's a lot of us out there who do. Um, and you know, I think that for those of us who, who do like animals, you can um, completely understand why, you know, having your cat or a dog or, you know, some um, animal that, that you can really relate to um, and bond with could be really therapeutic. Um, and, so, and so animal therapy as well. But then what was also really interesting, I thought, was the role of um, our allied healthcare professionals and multidisciplinary mm-hmm. teams mm-hmm. In, in helping people. So for example, um, a yeah, multidisciplinary care team was also shown to be uh, very like, clinically efficacious in helping to reduce symptoms of depression for people with dementia. And um, similarly, an occupational therapist. And and so I think under under all of these, what is really um, interesting and I think what they potentially support is really just that sense that, you know, people are sad for a reason and we're trying to, you know, help them to, to feel better, you know, we're helping them to reminisce, we're helping them to spend time with, you know, whether it be in person or Remotely with friends or family or or pets, um, and we're having you know skilled healthcare providers um, sort of working to figure out you know what what is causing this change in symptoms. You know how can mm-hmm. we modify their environment, for example, to improve their independence and and make them therefore feel feel better about themselves because um, they can do something for themselves today that they couldn't do yesterday um, because mm-hmm. of a change that was made in their environment. So so we identified a number of different interventions.
0: And if you had to pick just two or three that out of all the kind of data that your study looked at, what would you say are the most effective ones recognizing like for the animal therapy, some people are gonna respond to that more than others.
5: And, And I think that's the key is that, you know, when we actually ranked sort of all of the interventions, that you know like um we had uh sort of several actually that sort of ranked ranked the highest um that that you could consider um but of course you know one of the ones that ranked really high was massage therapy massage oh. and touch therapy which i i think that could obviously sort of depend on the person you know some people are going to enjoy you know having someone to, to hold their hand um and to you know just be sort of nicely talking to them and spending time with them versus Mm -hmm. other people might not want to be touched. And so I think that that's one of the other sort of great things about our study is that, um, you know, we identified a number of different choices that that people could consider um, depending on, you know, their likes and dislikes, Um, that there's not necessarily going to be like a one size fits all, um, Mm -hmm. but that there's sort of um, different interventions depending on you know what their interests are, and and what resources are available in their local communities.
1: I I mean I think the thing I picked up on, or would like to pick up on most from from that interview, which which is really useful. is it's great that you know that there there are researchers looking at this because it feels like a really important thing to to know what helps and what doesn't and why um is you know you know it depends on the person doesn't it and and I think that's one of the problems um we need to be remain very like aware of in evidence-based medicine isn't it is that it's not just person with dementia go and have this treatment it's well what what is you know what what is it the interests or what is it about the person that would could make one intervention, if you like, over another more effective or more likely to help, um, which I think is what we do very well as GPs. But um, you know, sometimes gets sort of diminished, I think, by um, guidelines and you know, randomised controlled trials, etc.
2: Mm.
1: Can I say that as a BMJ
2: <laughs> employee? Yeah, and I mean, it seems particularly poignant, doesn't it, for for people with dementia, where often it's that sense of self and personhood that is being kind of solely eroding away and to try and retain that is, um, seems particularly important.
3: But
0: just to kind of like seal the point in, when my grandmother was getting older, she was starting to have some cognitive impairment over and above kind of normal aging. And I remember. Um, It was after my grandpa, her partner, had died, and she was in this care home, and my mom and I would kind of take turns going to um, her home and, like, try to take her to these swimming classes, and she just wanted nothing to do with it. And we were like, come on, Grandma, like, get in the pool. (laughs) And, um, I mean, I'm laughing now because it's, like, hilariously embarrassing how bad we were, but just, like get in the pool grandma come on and and, and and like my mom and i have talked about this for years afterwards feeling guilty that we tried to force her to do this thinking that it was going to be for her benefit this like brain nurturing activity when she just <laughs> wanted nothing to do with it
2: was your grandmother a swimmer no, Once put a time. No. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> no. That was the, <laughs> that was the, that was the
0: right question. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: yeah. Did, was she more into animals? Like. <laughs> also, no. Oh. No. Okay. Also, no. <laughs> um.
0: This feels like a natural time to wrap. I don't know if anyone has a closing sentiment.
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I found it so interesting to reflect on. Um, so social isolation and the impact it's had on you know we've thought a lot about how it's affecting kind of vulnerable people in our society and i think to be able to hear from you know experts about uh the impact it's had on people with uh dementia and then some of the non pharmacological things we can do about it has been really really helpful i mean i think another role that we have as gps i suppose as well is to uh, be there for, for those um, caregivers as well, because it is an extremely, um, it can be a very sort of challenging uh, and demanding role, um, you know, not only dealing with the kind of emotional demands of, you know, that that person you love, um, what they're going through, but then all, also the all the other tasks that kind of you might be called upon to do. And so checking in with, um, you know, that people are... Coping and are supported. I think that's a really key part of part of what we do as well. You're right, and we haven't talked at all about medications
0: either, uh, pharmaceutical options for treating the cognitive impairment itself or the side effects that go along with dementia. And it would be great to hear from a GP who does look after folks in a nursing home. So be on the lookout for another segment, another episode. Coming up, uh, giving you a little bit of part two on this. Thanks so much to our guests today, Jason Carluish and Jen Watt. And thanks, as always, to Tom.
1: Thank you. See you, Jenny. And joy. Bye.
0: And joy. Thank you. See you next time. We'll have more on dementia coming up soon and we'll post all the links to the resources we mentioned in this episode to the show notes. But before that, we'll be back with another episode with Tom back in the driving seat talking about another of his favorite topics, too much medicine. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate us, leave us a review. It makes Tom so happy. Again, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. Thanks for listening.